0: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is a compilation episode, a collection of previously released material united around a central theme. Today, we are exploring relationships between the peoples of New Kingdom Egypt and the early Greeks. Between 1550 and 1150 BCE, the Egyptian New Kingdom, or the Late Bronze Age, people from the Nile Valley engaged in frequent communication, trade, and even diplomacy, with the groups living in the Eastern Mediterranean. In particular, the peoples of Crete, popularly known as the Minoans, and also the people of Mycenae. These groups, living in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Greek mainland communicated extensively with the people of the Nile Valley, and their rulers, the pharaohs. In fact, from the 18th dynasty, between 1500 and 1300 BCE, we have abundant records for trade, communication, and even diplomatic missions travelling between these lands. In some cases, the pharaohs of Egypt even seem to have employed artists and maybe mercenaries from these distant lands. Today we explore these tales, as they are told through archaeology, art, and ancient texts. Part 1. The reign of Thutmose III. Circa 1470 BCE. We begin our journey in Egypt's Northern Territories, We are in the Nile Delta amid narrow waterways, marshes, and papyrus thickets. The water moves slowly here as it trickles into a thousand times a thousand streams and bayous, making their leisurely journey northward towards the coast. Down there, the Nile will flow out into the Mediterranean Sea and into different lands. Pretty soon, we'll join them. But first, a small detour. Before we can go out into the open ocean, we have to stop for supplies, and to acquire a good, sea-going ship. So we head further north, towards a bustling, energetic port, one of the great centres of life in the 18th Dynasty Delta. We are sailing into a harbour town called Peru Nefer, which translates to Good Travels or Bon Voyage, a magnificent town built by royal edict and centred around large government palaces. Peru Nefer is the destination of choice for travellers and traders hoping to visit the eastern Mediterranean. It's the perfect place to start our journey. As we sail around the headland, the town opens before us, and we are greeted with an impressive sight. Dominating the town's horizon are three great palaces, fortified symbols of the Egyptian government and its presence. From their battlements and their offices, officials and scribes take stock of everything that comes into and goes out of the town. They catalogue, tally and tax. For their efforts, the royal treasury grows richer every day. It's not hard to see why. The river around Peru Nefer is clustered with great ships, huge constructions of up to 15 metres or 49 feet long. Built of cedar wood and staffed by large crews of all nationalities, these ships Fully stocked, can carry as much as 20 tons or 40,000 pounds of cargo. They are the container ships of their day, and they connect the world in ways that historians are only just beginning to understand, even now. But before we chart passage on one of these ships, we need to visit the government palaces. There's something I want to show you. Just outside one of the Egyptian palaces, archaeologists uncovered a rubbish pit. I mean, an ancient rubbish pit a dump of Bronze Age material dating to the time of Thutmose III and his successor, and associated with the palaces built for his government. In this rubbish dump were the fragmentary traces of some truly spectacular artwork, specifically artwork that was once made to decorate the walls of the large palaces. These paintings only survive in a tiny portion of what was once there, and it's lucky that they do it all. The fact that they survive it all is down to an accident of fate, Decades after they were installed, they were then removed by artisans and dumped into this rubbish pit. There, they were buried for three and a half thousand years. And thank goodness for that, because now they've survived. And with the right references, historians have reconstructed them. It seems that the palace of Peru Nefer was decorated with paintings of great splendor and beauty, scenes of nature, scenes of humans, scenes of vibrancy and energy, Scenes that you just don't often see in Egyptian art. But that's kind of the point. These paintings are not Egyptian. Take, first of all, the nature scenes. Wild animals, both real and fantastical, charge, run and leap over the ground. A leopard dashes between fig trees, a lion leaps over a canal, and a bull flees desperately as another pair of lions attack it ferociously. They are beautiful scenes, of course, you can see them on our website and Facebook page. They speak of a lifestyle or a type of person living in this area who was fascinated with images of nature, and of the complex relationships between predator and prey, which tell us something about the hierarchies of power. But then there are the animals that are a bit more fantastical. To go along with these real scenes, we also get a griffin half lion, half eagle, great wings spreading out from its back. It is a terrifying image, a symbol of deathly power. But then there are the scenes of humans, and these are slightly different, because they are scenes of humans themselves triumphing over nature. For this, we look to a long set of scenes showing men leaping over charging bulls. They dodge and duck beneath the beast as it charges. With skill and daring, they dodge the bulls and display their prowess for all to see. Humans, you see, are superior to animals in this particular ideology, and each feat is a testament to our skills and our cunning. As each leaper somersaults or ducks over and under the bull, they display their mastery of nature. So, there is a hierarchy between animals, and there is a hierarchy between humans and nature. To the artists who painted these scenes, Surely nothing could be more powerful than the power of a human. It seems that someone living here was fascinated by these images of deadly animals and their prey, and of symbols of power that came not necessarily from nature, but partly from the imagination. So, who was commissioning these paintings? Who was making them? If you've been paying attention to the podcast, specifically Middle Kingdom episodes, you may have a clue already what I'm going to say. The floor paintings in peru were made in a style found mostly on the island of Crete in the southern Aegean Sea. Crete, one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean, holds a special significance in the story of the ancient world. The Cretans were a seafaring, palace-building, bull- and sun-worshipping people whose culture thrived over approximately 1600 years, from 3000 to 1400 BCE. They were some of the most accomplished people of their day, having established a thriving cultural and trading kingdom all across the Aegean Sea. So what are they doing in the delta? Connections between Egypt and the Aegean Sea go way back, at least into the Middle Kingdom. Ships have come here regularly, even during the Second Intermediate Period, and the people of Crete have traded constantly with the Nile Valley. In the days of Tutmos III, it is possible that a small community of Cretan expats had settled down in the delta. It's not proven, and archaeologists only speculate on this, but it would account for the richness of their material remains. The artefacts are so abundant, in fact, that one of the head archaeologists working here, Professor Manfred Biertak, has even proposed something unusual. He suggests, stressing the speculative element, that in the days of Thutmose III, it is possible one of the Egyptian palaces actually played host to a foreign princess. Beatarch suggests that maybe, just maybe, an elite woman of Crete was sent to Egypt to become a wife of King Tutmos. If he is right, it would explain why these rich and beautiful artworks show up in the palace so randomly and so suddenly, and why they disappear so quickly. If the princess came to marry Tutmos when he was about 20, and then died when he was about 40, it would provide a very logical snapshot of the palace. So maybe this palace at peru was not just a government office decorated nicely, but in fact a royal residence, a residence for a foreign lady, a princess of Crete, who had become a minor queen of Egypt. Now, the people of Crete are traditionally referred to as the Minoans, but I'm not going to call them that. Instead, I'm going to refer to them by their Egyptian name, This name is the Keftiu. Keftiu means the ones who are at the rear. Now, what this meant more generally was that the Egyptians tended to look eastward for their trade and travel. These Cretans, who lived north by northwest, were coming from the wrong direction. Well, wrong or right, that is the direction that we are going in now. We're setting sail from Perunepha and heading out to visit the Keftiu in their home. We are sailing to Crete. Bing bong, Dominic from the future here. With a quick note on the archaeological context of the story I just told. In this episode, I placed the town of Peru Nefer in the Eastern Nile Delta. Specifically, I have located it at a town called Avaris, or its modern name Tel el Daba. I should note that this location for Peru Nefer is still a matter of academic debate. The town of Tel el Daba, ancient Avaris, is well recorded and explored by archaeologists working over several decades, but the town of Peru Nefer is known exclusively from texts and records from the 18th dynasty generally. There is no firm evidence to connect Peru Nefer and the town of Avaris or Tel el Daba, and as a result, different historians have reached different conclusions about the location of this place. At the time of writing this episode, I followed the interpretation of an Egyptologist named Manfred Biertek. Professor Manfred Biertek was the leader of the Austrian excavation at Tel al-Daba for many years. And his work to uncover this ancient settlement led him to conclude that This was most likely the location of the town called Peru-Nefer. However, other Egyptologists have suggested different locations, including sites closer to the Nile Valley, like Memphis or that area. To make a long story short, none of these different interpretations has any definitive evidence to prove it. The town of Peru-Nefer is referenced on royal monuments and texts, But those references don't include any specific details about the locations. There are a few factors that we can guess, but nothing really concrete. Anyway, I chose to place Peru Nefer in the Nile Delta, following the interpretation of Professor Manfred Biertak, but just know there is scholarly debate on that point. Anyway, on with our story. We set sail on a large sea-going ship. It is built of cedar, with a single mast and a large sail. It is designed for the Mediterranean voyages. Sailors, experienced and practiced, crew its decks. Beneath the floorboards, cargo holds are full of Egyptian goods to trade in foreign lands. Our ship carries ceramics, jewellery, scarabs, amulets, and most importantly, gold. Large quantities of gold mined from the southern lands of Nubia and the eastern desert. We are taking this to foreign lands, we are going well prepared for trading, and for obtaining those rare foreign goods which the Egyptian elite desire so greatly. The journey to Crete would traditionally be taken in a sort of roundabout manner. The Egyptians would sail to Syria and Palestine, then island hop over to Cyprus, and then over to Crete. As far as we know, they didn't necessarily sail directly across the Mediterranean. It's a long journey, and not a particularly safe one. Egyptians and Bronze Age sailors in general seemed to have hugged the coast wherever they could. But we're going to skip the tedium of the sailing life, and come directly to the Keftio's island home. Welcome to Crete. The people of Crete lead a charmed life. Protected by the sea, they developed a strong cultural influence over islands and the mainland, with their influence extending into mainland Greece and even up to Anatolia or Turkey. Some say that this developed into an empire of the sea, a thalassocracy, but the debate still rages on that particular point. For sure, the Cretans sailed the seas far and wide and traded their goods with peoples all over the eastern world. When they brought these goods back to Crete, they collected them in their hilltop palaces, recording them in a complicated script which only survives in fragments today. Much of the Cretans' internal history is lost, but what little we have paints a lovely picture. By the time Tutmos III came around, the Cretans had developed a series of large and sophisticated towns, These towns were built up around palaces, elite centres where religious and economic activity mixed together in a bustling hub. Part temple, part market, part bureaucracy, the palaces of Crete have left us some absolutely wonderful and gorgeous remains. Approaching Crete, we must note the deep sparkling blue of its waters, the pristine beauty of its beaches. We are far from the marshes and swampy hills of the delta here, let me assure you. As our ship comes into the northern coast, Keftiu come to the beach to greet us. They are familiar with Egyptian ships, and as we disembark onto the white sands, they direct us to the royal road. Following that, we will soon reach the nearest town, one of Crete's most prestigious and important sites. We are heading for Knossos. Knossos was the largest and most powerful town in Crete, as far as archaeologists can tell. It was first excavated around 1900, and then partially reconstructed by its excavator, which is a controversial decision in the archaeological community. Today, Knossos is quite beautiful. It is quiet and safe. I had the pleasure of visiting Knossos recently, in June 2016. Let me tell you, it was fantastic. The first thing you notice at Knossos is the sense of peace. Knossos feels wonderfully safe. Even though it doesn't have large walls or fortifications, the palace sits on a hilltop in between two high ridgelines. To its south, there is a mountain, where priests would watch the stars and observe the heavens. To its north, there is a long royal road, stretching to the coast. A road intended to bring tribute, trade goods, and agricultural wealth. Apart from its sense of safety, Knossos is beautiful. Olive groves and orchards fill the hills, and it's not hard to imagine some local gazing out over the hills as the sun and clouds drift by lazily. The breeze is cool as it comes in from the sea, and the valley is as quiet as it can be in the modern age. Truly, it is a magical area. The Keftiu of Knossos lived in small houses clustered around the larger palace area. Inside the royal residences, there were various areas set aside for worship. Worship which was often directed towards the rising sun, I might add. There was a throne room for receptions and hearings, small bathing pools in several houses, and everywhere, the frescoes and paintings that are so utterly unique to the Cretan world. There really is nothing like Cretan art. On the one hand, it reminds you of Egyptian, Assyrian, and Near Eastern art, and there are definitely some parallels there. But it also has a vitality that we often associate with much later Greek art, a vitality and sense of movement or dynamism that is particular to this part of the world, at least at this point in time. We know the Keftiu were avid seafarers. Their artifacts show up all over the Aegean, particularly on the island of Santorini, which was a major stronghold, and on the coast of Turkey or Anatolia. Greece obviously has plenty of Keftiu relics in its Bronze Age sites, and ancient towns as far east as Cyprus and Syria have evidence for the visiting them but not everything they did was based on ships and trade. They also produced plenty of their own goods. At home, keftiu industry was focused on a variety of things, like ceramics and jewellery, but also on swords. They were very good sword makers, surprisingly. They made large axes, which seemed to be ceremonial, and they made all kinds of decorative objects. They used gold a lot, probably gold imported from Egypt, and they also used silver and bronze. They made beads out of crystal, lapis lazuli, obsidian, and amethyst. They made faience, enamels, and they used African ivory extensively, and they even manufactured their own glass. Cretan jewellery is particularly pretty. Necklaces in the shape of bees, gold rings decorated with cities and dancers, bulls and flowers, and a particularly cool one where a crowned male holds aloft a pair of ducks for some reason while serpents fan out to either side. That one's a bit weird, I have to say, but I like it. The Keftiyu were big on their production, and it's not hard to see why. It's economic 101, right? To trade, you gotta make stuff to export. They did it very well. Even in the later days of their culture, the Keftiyu remained the masters of Aegean trade. Although they were eventually replaced by other cultures, at the time of Tutmos III, they were still lords of the sea, If the Egyptians controlled the Red Sea, and the Syrians controlled the coast of the Levant, the Keftiu were the undisputed masters of the islands, of Greece, and of western Turkey. Of course, as visitors from Egypt, we are most curious about one thing. How much were the Keftiu influenced by the people of the Nile Valley? Well, we know they communicated with them, traded with them, and visited them. But was it a simple economic relationship? or was there a deeper cultural exchange going on? This is a very difficult question to answer. Historians are debating it as we speak. What we know for certain is that the Keftiu picked up on some Egyptian symbols and used some Egyptian objects in their daily life. For example, ancient sites on Crete turn up plenty of Egyptian amulets, scarabs, and jewellery. So at the very least, people living on Crete enjoyed using Egyptian items as their personal accessories. We also know that some of the Keftiw's religious symbols were borrowed from Egypt and the Near East. For example, stylized crests, like a bull's horns, were added to Cretan temples as a sort of decorative element. To some historians, these horns of consecration are almost exactly like the Egyptian symbol for mountain or the horizon. So maybe they're not bull's horns at all, but symbols for mountains. That would make some sense, because the Cretans practiced a lot of their religious behavior in mountain caves. So, maybe the Keftiu adapted an old Egyptian symbol, and borrowed it for their own rituals. It's speculative, but the parallel is there. It might be an impossible question. I mean, how much do connections or coincidences really prove influence? In other words, just because the people of Crete used similar motifs or symbols, Should we just assume they were being influenced by outside cultures? For all we know, it's just a coincidence. It's not like the Egyptians have a monopoly on particular shapes. Maybe it's all just a misunderstanding. Honestly, we may never nail this one down properly. But still, it's an interesting question. Whether they were influenced by the Egyptians or simply communicated with them, the Keftiu of Crete forged a fantastic and splendid culture on their particular little corner of the world. They traded and sailed all over the Eastern Mediterranean, and their accomplishments are justly well-remembered. Sephora stores are everywhere you are, so just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist. A confidence boost before your interview, or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday. There's always a Sephora near you, just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. Part two, the reign of Amun-Hotep III, around 1380 BCE. The sea rose and fell, a dark swirling mass under a clear blue sky. The waters were deep, impossibly so, and the darkness of those depths seemed like an abyss for the sailors who rowed bravely upon the waves. An Egyptian vessel made of fine cedar wood unfurled its sail and sped across the sea. The sail, fabric dyed green and red, rippled in the breezes which flowed at the sailors' backs. The great sea-going ship and its hardy crew were the representatives of Neb Ma'at-Rei Amun-Hotep III. The pharaoh of Egypt had commanded an embassy to go forth. Amun-Hotep wished to forge connections with a people that were recently arrived on the international political scene. They were up-and-comers, but increasingly worthy of Egyptian notice. With this in mind, the king commanded a deputation to go forth and a company of Egyptian aristocrats had boarded the great vessel and now sailed across the sea in order to visit mysterious places, unknown to their ancestors. They were heading for the land of Greece. Greece was a distant shadow in Egyptian knowledge. Its people had been working their land for 2,000 years and more, With some minor interruptions, Greeks of different social identities had scratched a living on the edge of the known world. Today, those Greeks were attaining more recognition, thanks to the appearance of the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans were a rising power in the Aegean. Recently, Egyptians had heard of these people, whom they called Tanayu or Danaeans. The Tanayu Mycenaeans lived on rocky peninsulae, far flung isles, and even Great Crete. They were accomplished in seafaring and perhaps piracy, and for the past eighty years the Mycenaeans had been gradually spreading influence over the seas. From references to embassies and small hints of trade, it seems that the Mycenaeans were now eight decades into a phase of upward mobility. The Egyptians we ready to take these people seriously. To visit Mycenae and Greece, the Egyptian ship had sailed via the large island of Crete. There, they would have engaged with the locals, the Keftiu or Minoans, and learned what they could of the Mycenaeans. That actually would have been quite easy. You see, by 1370 BCE, Mycenaeans were actually living in Crete, and perhaps ruling the island themselves. Mycenaean texts appear on the island of Crete, along with their material objects, and administrative documents written in the Mycenaean script actually replace those of the old Keftiu. It seems that around 1400 BCE, or a bit earlier, Mycenaeans had come to dominate several Aegean islands. People like the Keftiu Minoans were subdued or pushed to one side. Now there's a lot to say about that, and I didn't want to get bogged down this early. So, there will be an episode 102b, in which we explore the Mycenaean conquest of the island of Crete. Suffice to say, the Egyptians visited Crete, found that the Minoans were no longer in charge, and so set off for the mainland of Greece, in order to meet these newly powerful peoples. They soon came to the area that we know as the Peloponnesian coast. Rounding a promontory, the Egyptian vessel approached a harbour. This was the town of Nafplion, which the Egyptians called Nupiri. It nestled on a safe shore on the western coast, where it remains to this day. The Peloponnese is lined with rocky valleys and indentations, making its coastline alternately very exposed, but also very sheltered. Nafplion was a quiet place, perfect for anchorage. The Egyptian ship moored at the town, and the ambassadors disembarked. Within Nafplion, they began to ask around, where could they find the Mycenaean people who were so influential? Offering some trinkets, they soon recruited some guides, and began to head up the road towards the great city itself. The ambassadors loaded a team of donkeys, perhaps purchased in Nafplion, and set off on the dirt roads. To orient ourselves a bit, the Egyptians were heading north, following a road that led from the bay up to the mountains. On their left, one could follow paths leading to Argos, a famous town. On their right, the hills rose up in a commanding barrier. So the Egyptians were heading almost due north, towards the mountainous city of Mycenae. The Egyptians called Mycenae Mukinu, which is surprisingly close to the way Homer spells it in his Iliad. Homer calls the city Mukini, so he was pretty close to the Egyptian equivalent, all things considered. I'll call it Mycenae, because that's the most common version in English. But just know that the original pronunciation is closer to Mukini. The ambassadors trudged through a strange landscape. Far from the Nile Valley with its sandstone cliffs and gentle hills, the topography of Greece must have seemed otherworldly. Mountains rose suddenly from the ocean itself. Yellow grasses colored the landscape. Rocks of many different shades permeated the ground, glassy grays and blacks, even blues and greens. These were the product of volcanic activity throughout the Greek world. To the Egyptians, this must have seemed very unusual. Apart from the strangeness, the Egyptians also found themselves climbing much higher than they were used to. Compared to Egypt, Greece is positively alpine, and as they rose up higher, the Egyptians got a very different view of the world around them. To the south, the sea stretched to the horizon. To the north, mountains loomed impassable. All around, the hills rose and fell in rocky crags. Up here, a new perspective seemed to open up. The vistas of Greece are spectacular. Trudging along the paths, clambering over outcroppings, the embassy marveled at the differences between this land and their home. Even the trees were strange. Spreading oaks, towering poplars, and vast plain trees dominated the hills. Fig trees populated the lower slopes, and perhaps the local guides presented their guests with figs or acorns for a snack en route. Among these towering hills, colorful rocks and different trees, shepherds tended to flocks of sheep, goats and cattle. A few farmers managed their holdings, but to the Egyptians, the agriculture of Greece must have seemed paltry Compared to the predictable river and the lush delta, Mainland Greece must have seemed like a truly alien land. The people were a different matter, though, far more recognizable and familiar. Mycenaeans dressed much like the Egyptians. Kilts and loincloths were functional and cool, perfect for long days in the sun. The only differences, really, were in the details. Mycenaeans used wool for their clothing compared to the Egyptian linen. Apart from that, the differences are minor. An Egyptian farmer and a Mycenaean one had much more in common than not. That being said, the Mycenaeans were, as a people, quite distinctive physically. For one thing, they were tall. The males averaged about 171 centimetres, or 5 foot 7. The females averaged 159 centimetres, 5 2. For comparison, the Egyptian males were only as tall as the Mycenaean females. So the Mycenaean men must have towered over their foreign guests. One noteworthy skeleton revealed a man who, at 55 years old, was still powerfully built with broad shoulders. He had a round head, a high straight forehead, large nose, prominent lips, and close-together eyes. Imagine a bronze-skinned bear of a man, with black hair and beard, and you might have an image of the Mycenaeans whom our embassy encountered. I will talk a bit more about Mycenaean characteristics, including their diet, life expectancy and general health, later on in the episode. For now, let's keep the image of these tall, muscular folk in our head, as the Egyptians at last approached their destination. Rounding a bend, the Egyptians came fully into view of the city of Mycenae. The site must have been quite beautiful. The city perched on an outcropping which jutted out of a huge mountain that stretched from east to west. This mountain dominated the area, and on its southwestern slopes, the Mycenae Acropolis commanded its environment. For reference, the main settlement was about 280 meters above sea level, or 918 feet. Compare that to Giza, which is just 19 meters above sea level, and the Egyptians were climbing to exceptional heights. Making their way up the western slopes, the Egyptians found themselves nearing the peak of the rocky plateau. To their left, rock faces were an impassable wall. To the right, the ground sloped sharply downwards towards a ravine far below. Ahead, Mycenae spread across the hill. Perched at the top of the plateau, the Acropolis, or summit of the city, was dominated by an ornate government building. This was the Megaron, the Great Hall. It was the centre of administrative life, and around it, houses and workshops clustered on the slopes. The city itself was open to the countryside. A few decades later, the Mycenaeans would surround their town in huge stone walls, very impressive things but for now, the locals relied on natural barriers rather than artificial ones. Still, Mycenae was the thriving centre of labour in a wide region. Approaching the city, the Egyptians may have been struck by some rather noticeable differences with their own homes. For one thing, Mycenae of 1370 BCE was almost entirely lacking in temples. There were a few small shrines, but these were tiny, just a few metres long and wide. Compared to the Egyptian temples, holy spaces in Mycenae may have seemed somewhat pitiful. Tombs were also far less grand than the pharaonic world. A few steely, marked some graves, and if the Egyptians looked to their left, they would have seen some mounds clustered on a hill to the north. More on those later. But the Mycenaeans were clearly in a more formative phase of their architectural development. Later on, they would achieve some truly remarkable things, but in 1370 BCE, the Egyptians may have been a bit surprised that a people with such far-reaching power had such a sparse hometown. But hey, they would get there. The Egyptians made their way into the town. They were dusty, perhaps a bit sore from the walk or ride, and in need of a cool drink. The sun was hot. The white plastered walls of the Megaron gleamed brightly. But time was pressing. After a quick pause to wash and dress in fresh clothing, the Egyptians approached the palace of Mycenae. The Megaron was a tall, rectangular structure. At its front, a porch flanked by columns made for a grandiose entrance. The columns were wood, painted in bright colours and perhaps gilded with bronze. Passing them, the Egyptians probably appreciated the similarity between Mycenaean architecture and their own columned halls. As they entered the palace, after some formalities, they were probably feeling relatively comfortable. The interior though, that was quite different indeed. After the porch, the Egyptians entered an atrium space, Then, passing a door or curtain, they came into the throne room, the heart of governance and power in the city of Mycenae. This was an amazing area. Based on the decoration of contemporary palaces, specifically at the town of Pylos, we can guess that the Mycenaean throne room was a large square hall. Four pillars supported the roof. In their midst, a circular fire pit was the center of the room. This stone hearth was the primary feature, both a place to gather and stay warm, and a place to cook meals for the powerful of the realm. Compared to Egypt, hot and dry, this might have seemed like a strange feature to have in the centre of the hall, but it was certainly an interesting one. Around the walls, brightly coloured frescoes depicted a variety of scenes. Human figures carrying offerings formed processional lines. Trees and flowers created nature scenes, and wild animals like lions and griffins, half lion, half eagle, made for a rich menagerie of powerful, untamable animals. To round out these scenes, images of festivals included lyre players, and even a bull sacrifice. The effect, according to one scholar, was to create a space that was connected to the earthly power of a ruler, and the ceremonial functions which a Mycenaean king should fulfill. The king of Mycenae was called a Wanax. The Wanax was a leader of warrior, priestly, and agricultural concerns. He commanded soldiers, led religious ceremonies, and managed aspects of the local economy. In other words, the Wanax was a versatile figure, whose expertise and skills could find a home in several areas of society at once. He was assisted in his leadership by a sort of deputy or vassal called the Lauegettas. Without getting into too much detail, I'll just say that as the Egyptian ambassadors entered the Mycenaean palace, they probably encountered the following scenario. Seated on a tall wooden throne, the Mycenaean king was an impressive figure. A richly colored robe and a plumed crown marked him as a leader of men, His skin was olive tan, his black hair long and curly. Robes made of wool or linen were coloured in reds or blues. His crown, perhaps, was decorated with feathers and rosettes of gold. In fact, as far as we can guess, he was probably wearing a lot of gold. Evidence from royal graves at Mycenae suggests that early rulers used an incredible array of high-quality objects made in yellow metal cups, rings, pendants, even swords were decorated in gold and silver. On some objects, we see inlays of warriors in battle. On others, we see images of hunting, men in chariots chasing deer, and war, spear-armed warriors piercing their enemies, who cower before them. These weapons and the armor that attended them were often decorated in gold. Speaking of war... To either side of the king there would have been guards, and these are worth a quick look, because Mycenaean warriors are intriguing. Mycenaean armour and weapons survive to this day, and what they reveal is a people with advanced military technology and a powerful emphasis on battle. Mycenaean swords could be quite long, up to 90 centimetres in the early periods. By the time the Egyptians visited, they were slowly switching from long, heavy swords to shorter, dagger-type swords, and this may have been partly influenced by necessity, or perhaps by connections and communication with the peoples of the Near East. The Mycenaeans were skilled weapon makers. The swords have elegant blades, which taper inwards with a slight curve halfway down the sword. The pommel and the blade were made of one piece, clad in wood and wrapped in leather. When used, these sharp-edged swords would have slashed with deadly efficacy. Of course, the primary weapon was probably the spear. Simple and effective, spears were the weapon of choice for most of the ancient world. Mycenaean spears were usually held with both hands, raised at the shoulder. Long and heavy, these were great in a chariot or when standing in a line. Later on, the Mycenaeans adopted shorter ones that they could carry with one hand while holding a shield. If you visit the podcast website, you can see reconstructions of this. Essentially, Mycenaeans sit at the very beginning of the Greek warrior tradition. Clad in their armor, shield and spear, a Mycenaean warrior would thrust and parry with his opponents, fighting for advantage. When the blow struck, long leaf-shaped blades could pierce the victim's side. Mycenaean armor was a fantastic sight. It was made of bronze in heavy plates that curved around the body. These plates were linked by leather thongs and put together, the armour covered the body from neck all the way down to knees. On the head, the Mycenaean soldier wore a helmet made of leather and tusks from the wild boar. These tusks were cut into curved strips and bound with leather and bronze. The helmets are quite unique. In fact, they are so distinctive that we can often use them to identify Mycenaeans in foreign artwork, including from Egypt. The Mycenaean armor gives an amazing silhouette, like a bronze age equivalent of the medieval knights. To the Egyptians, used to wearing kilts, shields, and maybe some leather or scales, these armored warriors must have been an imposing sight. Intimidating bodyguards aside, the king of Mycenae, the Wanax, welcomed his foreign guests. And now, the Egyptian embassy could truly begin. The Egyptians entered the throne room and greeted the ruler of Mycenae. To the Wanaks, from the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb-Ma'at-Rei, the son of Re, Amunhotep, ruler of Thebes, the good god given life, greetings. The ambassadors spoke of their journey, of their homeland, and of the majesty of their great king, ruler of all that the Aten encircles. From the pharaoh and lord of two lands they came in peace, with good wishes for the well-being of the Mycenaean ruler. The great lord, who is mighty in his two arms, who is victorious over all foreign peoples, sent them with generosity and gifts. With goodwill, a lasting friendship might be established. The Wanaks welcomed the newcomers, and the Egyptians presented their gifts. We can get a sense of what these gifts may have included, because some Egyptian artifacts have been uncovered in the ruins of Mycenae. Specifically, archaeologists have found objects named by Amun-Hotep III buried in the ruins of the ancient citadel. These objects are fascinating. The Egyptians gave their hosts a set of blue faience plaques. The plaques, in the shape of rectangular tiles, were glazed a bright blue and decorated with rich black hieroglyphs. Those hieroglyphs, when reconstructed, say something like the following, Necher nefer neb ma'at re sa ra amunhotep heka waset Ank, The good god neb ma'at re, the son of re amunhotep, ruler of Thebes, given life. End quote. Presumably the Mycenaeans could not read these hieroglyphs, but the significance was easy to explain. The pharaoh of Egypt, lord of the two lands, extended his hand and offered a gift to the wanax of Mycenae. Sending beautiful, costly goods, the king of Egypt sought brotherhood and good relations with a rising power in the Aegean world. This was a significant moment in political history. The Egyptians gave the plaques to their hosts, and the gift was accepted graciously. It seems that the Mycenaeans treated these objects with respect, at least for a while. When they were discovered, the plaques show up in a number of houses and spaces of Mycenae's grand citadel. It's likely that over the generations, the plaques became heirlooms, treasured relics of politically happy days. Whatever the story, they clearly survived for many decades, and that suggests that the locals appreciated their significance. With the formal introductions done, the real work of relationship building began. Along with the plaques, the Egyptians presented gifts like scarabs, also stone jars, particularly the milky white alabaster and the smooth granodiorite, which is prestigious and hard to work. There were also items of wood, like a box inlaid with ivory, discovered in a Mycenaean grave. There were faience cups, bowls, vases, even a silver spoon. These sorts of objects have been found in Mycenaean burials, and many of them are either definitively or most likely to be Egyptian in design and manufacture. When they travelled, the Egyptian embassies seem to have brought lavish gifts indeed. The Mycenaeans would have returned the favour of course, presenting equally valuable gifts to their honoured guests. I will talk about the Mycenaean gifts later on. For now, let's get down to the real business of socialising. It was time for a banquet. Banquets played a prominent role in Mycenaean society. Gatherings based around food were the nucleus of elite culture, and traces of these gatherings are abundant in both countries. Settling into a feast, the Mycenaeans put on a lavish spread for their foreign guests. From their texts, we can get a sense of the foods they might have served. The Mycenaeans could have offered a variety of cereals, fruits, meats, and vegetables. Flat bread and porridge was made from barley, spelt, millet, and durum wheat. Going along with that, fruits like figs, plums, pears, cherries, pomegranates, and even wild strawberries were served for flavour. Honey, pistachio nuts, acorns, and chestnuts would appear depending on the season. Vegetables like cucumbers, parsnips, leeks garlic, and lettuce were also common, along with coriander, celery, fennel, and even cumin. Traces of these foods in archaeological sites and written sources give us a sense of a rich and varied diet in cereals, fruits, and vegetables. The Egyptians would have been quite familiar with pomegranates, figs, and even olives, but pears and cherries were unknown, and they wouldn't become common in Egypt until the Roman era, more than 1300 years later. To the Egyptian embassy, this spread of fruits and vegetables was probably a tantalising mix of the familiar and the deliciously exotic. As for meat, well, the Mycenaean hosts would have served up roast beef, pork, lamb and goat. These would have been familiar enough to the Egyptians, but there are also references to the consumption of horse, rabbit, deer and boars. There is even talk of Mycenaeans eating animals like badgers, beavers, martens, and otters. And, sadly, there is a reference to the consumption of dog. According to texts, Mycenaeans apparently ate dogs, at least occasionally. So there's a fact of the day. With the food coming in droves, the Egyptians and Mycenaeans also made sure to toast each other copiously with drink. The Mycenaeans have left some beautiful vessels behind. Drinking cups like the kantharos, which has two handles, are elegantly simple. With smooth, polished sides, Mycenaean kantharoi made of gold show up in their graves, revealing a beautiful state of craftsmanship. Similarly, goblets decorated with flowers and large ceramic vessels called kratur were painted with images of wild animals and members of the nobility riding in their chariots. Viewed together, these drinking vessels showcased the wealth of Mycenaean society, and the beauty of their artistry. You can see images of these objects on the website. They are gorgeous. The banquet was, hopefully, a cheerful gathering. The fire burned bright, the wine flowed free, and the conversation, mediated by translators, brought the two peoples closer in brotherhood. From opposite ends of the known world, the rich and powerful of Greece and Egypt laid the foundations for an enduring relationship. It was a good day in political history. The next morning, the Egyptian ambassadors gathered in the palace, Megaron, of Mycenae. They had feasted and fettered, enjoying the hospitality of the wealthy Mycenaean elite. Now, slightly hungover they came together to witness some of their host's culture. The pre-dawn light was a great time to explore Mycenae. The citadel's high position gives it a beautiful view of the countryside, and as the sky lightened from black to purple to blue, they would have seen the very best that the Peloponnesian landscape has to offer. Just before the sun rose, the ambassadors were treated to an experience of Mycenaean religion. Compared with classical Greece, the practices of the Mycenaeans in cult worship are a bit more mysterious, but enough evidence survives to give us some very basic ideas. First of all, the actual worship took place in a variety of locations. Like the Minoans, the Mycenaeans were enthusiastic nature worshippers, with many religious sites appearing on the peaks of mountains and in forest clearings. They had shrines within the cities themselves, but these were familiar to the Egyptians, so I want to focus on the outdoors. The natural sanctuaries were called the temenos, literally, space cut out of communal land. Under the open sky, worship and ritual were probably significant events within their local community. There were animal sacrifices and communal feasts on important occasions. Pretty familiar, right? The Egyptians, at events like Opet and the beautiful Feast of the Valley, celebrated their gods in the open air, and consumed huge quantities of food and drink on their way to spiritual and physical release. The Mycenaean ceremonies, although located in different areas, were probably not so different. As for the gods, we have a dim understanding of Mycenaean cults from the survival of texts in their written language. These texts, which usually record economic and administrative concerns, also preserve the names of different shrines and the deities that were worshipped there. Some of these deities are startlingly familiar. From the written record, we know that one of the most prominent gods at Mycenae was named Poseidon, aka Poseidon. Poseidon, in his form of Poseidon, Poseidon the Earthshaker, was a powerful figure in the Peloponnese. The peninsula is prone to earthquakes, and a god like the Earthshaker seems like a natural subject for ancient worship. When the ground tremors, and you don't understand why, it's much easier to fear the wrath of an angry god. So Poseidon was a big deal. We also hear about the goddess Potnia, literally, she who has power. Potnia appears in many different guises, some of which later became quite famous. Potnia was connected with horses and grains, like the goddess Demeter, and in certain areas she became known as Potnia of insert region here. From that formula, we get a truly legendary being, Potnia Athana, aka she who has power in the land of Athens. Nearly a thousand years after the Egyptian embassy, Potnia Athana was being worshipped as Athena, the greatest lady of the Greek pantheon. At least, she's my favourite. I think the Egyptians would have understood, even appreciated, Potnia. She who has power was, after all, strangely similar to their own Sarkmet, the powerful lady. If they learned about Potnia in detail, the Egyptians may have equated her with Sakhmet and appreciated that throughout the world, the great lady of power was recognised and worshipped. That's just a fanciful idea that I have, but I like to imagine the Egyptians watching an offering to Potnia and nodding, thinking of their own Sakhmet, the lioness who protected them. Many other gods show up in the Mycenaean tablets, and most of them are related to classical figures. We see references to Diwo Nisoyo, aka Dionysus, lord of fertility and wine, who was worshipped at fire altars. We also find traces of Emaha, Hermes, Eira, Hera, Mater Thea the mother goddess, and two gods called Diwo and Diwia, that is Zeus and female Zeus, respectively. Yes, although we mostly think of just Zeus today he has a feminine equivalent, and her power was just as respected in Mycenaean Greece as that of the male. Once again, the Egyptians might have recognized this god in the form of their Amun and Amunet, the male-female pair who were part of the hidden mystery of life. Surprisingly, the Mycenaeans didn't depict their gods in paintings in the same way that the Egyptians did. Apart from small cult figurines, they seem to have avoided artistic representations of the great beings. Was this because the gods were, ultimately, unknowable? Or was it because they were beyond such petty contrivances as artistic imagery? Or is it an accident of preservation, a simple fact that whatever paintings did exist have now crumbled to dust? Only time and more research will tell, but some scholars have wondered if this Absence of paintings suggests that the Mycenaeans viewed their gods as something more like supernatural forces rather than anthropomorphic personalities. That's a tough sell, in my view, but this is the history of Egypt, not the history of ancient Greece. I am in foreign territory here. The Mycenaean priests, perhaps even the Wanax himself, offered their gifts and prayers to the great rulers of their pantheon. The Egyptians watched respectfully, appreciating the similarities and observing the differences, taking away some notes for later reflection. The rituals complete, the Egyptians perhaps made a small prayer to the rising sun. Ra Horakti, the Horus of the two horizons, was cresting the distant hills. Appearing in his form of Aten, the sun disk that illuminates all lands, he came forth to shine on Mycenae as brightly as he did on Egypt. With incense in hand, and perhaps some Mycenaean oils and food, the Egyptians praised the elder god as their foreign hosts looked on. Before the Egyptians departed the sanctuary, the Mycenaeans took a moment to show them the amazing wealth of their ancestors. They took them a few hundred meters north, towards a hill butting up against the great mountain. There, nestled into the slopes, the Mycenaeans showed them a remarkable tomb which survives to this day. The tomb of Atreus, so-called, is the grandest tomb in Mycenaean Greece. It is a kind of tomb called the tholos, or dome. Tholos tombs are a monumental kind of barrow. They take the form of a large circular dome dug into the hillside and covered over with heavy stone blocks. Gravity keeps the roof up in an arch, and in the centre of the hall, the grave is dug into the floor. Around the perimeter of this circular space, small chambers radiate outwards. Some of them hold funerary goods, others might hold additional burials. Tholos tombs are magnificent specimens of Mycenaean construction, and the tomb of Atreus is the greatest of all. To be honest, there is some debate over when the tomb of Atreus was built. Dates range from 1450 BCE or even earlier, to as late as 1300 BCE. But with a bit of charity and a nice average, we could put the tomb roughly around 1375. So in my mind, the hypothetical Egyptian embassy may have got to see a hypothetical tomb, newly completed and ready for the king's burial. Since it wasn't being used just yet, the Egyptians were allowed to go inside and take a look. Let's follow them. To begin with, the tomb of Atreus is huge. As they approached, the Egyptians would have encountered a tall, imposing gateway leading into the tomb itself. This gateway is a real achievement. 4.8 meters tall, or 16 feet, it is made of huge stone blocks weighing up to 120 tons. The door itself is a simple rectangle, but above the lintel stone, 9 meters long, a triangular space acts as a kind of relieving chamber for the entrance. This displaces the weight of the stone and earth above the door and makes it stronger. Passing through the doorway, the Egyptians would have entered a cavernous circular space. From wall to wall, the main chamber stretches 14.6 meters, 48 feet, and almost the same dimensions in height. A vast room, the burial hall is a mighty sight indeed. Standing inside, you feel like you are in a cathedral, but many times older than even the most ancient Christian monument. Here, at the heart of Mycenae's ancestral space, the tomb of Atreus is an imposing sight indeed. The tomb was empty when discovered, of course. Like the pyramids, it is too visible and too tempting to survive the ages. Nevertheless, some wonderful treasures do survive from Mycenaean royal burials, and you can see these on the podcast website. The embassy and their hosts now turned away from the tomb of Atreus and began to return to Mycenae itself. Just outside the city though, the Mycenaeans may have stopped in order to show the Egyptians where their earliest kings and some of their ancestors had been buried in great splendor. Just before they arrived though, the Mycenaeans may have taken a moment to show their guests the amazing wealth of their cemeteries. You see, clustered around the edges of Mycenae, and now partly buried by the walls, A necropolis of graves grew up between 1600 and 1350 BCE. These graves took the form of deep shafts at the bottom of which the deceased were laid in prone fetal position, surrounded by high quality grave goods. At the top of the shaft, stone stelae marked the burial spot, and archaeologists examining these cemeteries have compiled a wonderfully rich vision of Mycenaean wealth, along with some basic features of their lifestyles. To start with, many of the graves are infants and children. One estimate says that 60% of children died in their first year. Others, like a woman buried with a child, reinforce the fact that pre-modern societies across the world endured a much higher rate of infant and birth-related mortality. It was a rough time, medically speaking, and the cemeteries of Mycenae are exactly like those of Egypt, in that regard. For the adult burials, things are slightly different. The average age seems to be about 36 years old, with evidence pointing to a good diet and overall health. Mycenaean teeth were stronger than Egyptians, and they were taller. The Mycenaeans averaged about 171 centimeters tall, or 5 foot 7. The Egyptians meanwhile, averaged just one hundred and fifty nine centimetres, five foot two, on top of that, the skeletons suggest that Mycenaean males were broad and muscular with large feet and hands, and you know what they say about large feet and hands to the Egyptians, these men may have seemed like an imposing people. It's hard not to think of the legendary Ajax, largest of the Greeks at Troy, when looking at the Mycenaean skeletons. Speaking of Ajax, and legendary Atreus, whose tomb supposedly we just visited, there are plenty of mythological figures associated with Mycenae. If they ever existed, these were probably ordinary humans, whose deeds were collated and compiled into larger-than-life characters. But, the legacy of Ajax and Atreus lived on in the stories which ancient Greeks told about their ancestors. Before we leave Mycenae, Let's take a quick moment to round out the legendary history of this very real town. For better or worse, the Bronze Age community of Mycenae is famous in Greek mythology, and it holds a commanding position in their tales. It was said that the hero Perseus, who slew Medusa the Gorgon, founded Mycenae as part of his kingdom. Perseus ruled long and well, and his descendants led Mycenae for four generations in the so-called Perseid dynasty. Over time, the city grew mighty, and its rulers attained great authority in their region. They were even able to command other heroes to do their bidding. It was said that the great-grandson of Perseus, a king named Eurystheus, got into an argument or feud with the great Heracles, Hercules. Eurystheus was powerful indeed, and it was he that commanded Heracles to perform his famous 12 labours, in penance for some great crimes. Heracles did these deeds of course, and so his own legend is bound up with that of Mycenae. Long after Heracles, and over a hundred years after Amonhotep III, Mycenae became the home of the most famous king of all Greece. Mighty Agamemnon ruled Mycenae around 1250 BCE, so it is said. And in his day, the great king led the Greeks to war against Troy. That is a story for another day, but it's worth remembering. Not just because the Trojan War is so famous, but because the Egyptians have their own connection with that story. Thinking back to episode 96, The Colossi of Memnon, You may recall that a legendary warrior, Memnon, king of Ethiopia and Egypt, travelled to the city of Troy in order to fight on behalf of the Trojans against the invading Greeks, and their king Agamemnon. Well, King Memnon of Ethiopia was later equated with King Amunhotep III of Egypt on account of those magnificent statues west of Thebes, so there is a connection between Amunhotep and the Trojan War. It's a tenuous one, and the Greeks kind of made it up later on, but still, it's there. And it's an amusing irony that Memnon, king of Ethiopia and Egypt, was supposed to have fought against the Mycenaeans. Meanwhile, Amunhotep III, the inspiration for Memnon, actually forged diplomatic ties with that same people. So history and legend became twisted and inverted. Historically, the Egyptians got along well with Agamemnon's people. In legend, though, they became better antagonists. Anyway, let's move on from legend, and finish up our visit to Mycenae. The time now came for the Egyptian embassy to leave Mycenae. They had achieved their goals, and opened relations with the great city. They had toured its spaces, and visited some of its great monuments. Now, they must return home, to report to their pharaoh what wonders they had seen, what people they had met, and what successes they had enjoyed. Before they left, the Mycenaeans gave their guests presents to take home to Egypt. We know for certain that Mycenaean pottery travelled to the Nile Valley in large quantities during this general time period, but we can also guess that the Greeks offered some valuable materials as part of their new friendship. For one thing, olives and olive trees seem to have arrived in the land of the Nile within just a few decades of this embassy. Olive trees are known in the city of Amarna, where Amunhotep III's son Akhenaten ruled. Olive wreaths also showed up in the tomb of Tutankhamun, Amunhotep's grandson. So it's a good bet that olives came to Egypt in the reign of this great king. There was also valuable ore. The Mycenaeans mined huge quantities of silver and lead in different parts of Greece. These ores could be shipped raw to other centres for refinement, much like the copper ingots which travelled from Cyprus all across the Near East. Metal ore for weapons or objects was an increasingly important commodity. As technologies were developing and new refinements emerging, lead and silver ore were immensely valuable gifts. Finally, there is the possibility that the Mycenaeans offered their guests some of their own people. Based on evidence from Egypt, which I'll explain another time, it is possible that an expatriate community of Mycenaean artists, and maybe even soldiers, travelled abroad to serve the whims of Pharaoh. Whether they went as temporary workers or permanent migrants, the idea of Mycenaeans setting up shop in Egypt is surprisingly not that far-fetched. Anyways, as I said, pottery is the only product we know definitively travelled to Egypt. Artists and soldiers are likely based on artistic images, but we really don't know for sure. Still, it's a great idea. And I would like to imagine the embassy departed Mycenae, loaded with gifts, from the powerful Greeks to the lord of the Nile Valley. The world was becoming a lot more connected. There is so much more to say about Mycenaean culture and religion. I've really just scratched the surface. Sadly, we can't be away from home forever. So we must bid farewell to the rocky peninsula, and take ship back onto the ocean, heading for home. Don't worry, we'll be back. One day. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On a windy mountain peak, a woman cleared dirt and mess from an altar. Stone slabs making a floor were littered with bits of offerings, broken pottery, scraps of food, ashes from fire. Dark pools of liquid marked the libations of wine poured onto the stones for cleansing the earth. Mixed with the wine, the splash of animals' blood was a black stain. A Cretan priestess was performing her duties at a stone altar. The altar had steps leading up to it, on which pilgrims and locals had placed tiny figurines of bronze and clay, offerings to the great gods high above. The steps were covered in garlands of flowers and bowls of food or wine. To one side, a pair of tall bronze axes gleamed in the sunlight, their double heads a wicked blade for use in sacrifice. All around, the symbols and remnants of worship were a constant sight. Like many Cretans, the priestess conducted her rituals at a sanctuary built on a mountain peak. Difficult to reach, exposed to the elements, and with an unparalleled view of the land and sea, the mountain sanctuary was the perfect place to experience the wonder of nature and connect with the high power of the divine. Cleaning her altar, the priestess could feel that energy all around, in the howl of the wind, the chill of the air, the scent of the sea far below. As she worked, she hummed a rhythm of ancient worship, a paean of praise to the gods in the sky. Had she looked down from her lofty space, she may have seen a curious sight. A strange ship, with an unfamiliar hull and unusually coloured sails, was making its way towards the island. It had come from the north, but that was the home of the invaders, the raiders who came from Greece and caused calamities in the harbours of Crete. This wasn't one of their ships, so who was it? The priestess finished her cleaning and headed back down the mountain. Soon enough, she reached her hometown, and there had a chance to watch as a great vessel pulled into the harbour. With a lotus blossom prow, and a brightly coloured sail, the ship was crewed by dark-skinned men in bright white linens. She knew these people, she had seen their like before the Egyptians were returning to Crete. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 102b colourful Keftiu, aka Twilight on Crete. This is part two of our journey abroad, following an Egyptian embassy as they travel to the lands of the Aegean. With the wind at our backs, and the blessings of Shu and Tefnut upon us, we ride the waves to foreign shores. This episode is brought to you by Alan C, who donated to the show. Also thanks to Chris and Cheryl for becoming patrons of the podcast. Alan, Cheryl, Chris, you are too kind. May Zeus and his overlord Ra, the falcon of two horizons, guide you to safe shores always. For everyone listening, please enjoy the show. Once again, the sea rose and fell. The waves crested, then collapsed. Their deep blues, a colour almost as dark as wine, shimmered in the summer sun. Riding these waves, a mighty ship ploughed its way southward. The ship was an Egyptian seagoer. It was heading for Crete. Crete was an old favourite, the island of choice for traders and sailors throughout the Bronze Age Mediterranean. From Egypt, Canaan, Syria, Cyprus and Anatolia, great ships made the westward journey, bringing wares and goodwill to the island of the seafarers. From far and wide, people visited mountainous Crete and its people called Keftiu. The Keftiu, what we call Minoans, were the inhabitants and rulers of Crete for over 1,000 years. They lived in settlements across the island, on the coasts and the mountainous interior. They farmed and hunted the woods, fished the waters, and worshipped in the natural landscape of their beautiful home. From their immense, lavish palaces, the Keftiu rulers commanded great influence across the Bronze Age seas. Fortunately, they were friendly to the Egyptians. Most importantly, they were rich. So the Egyptian ship plied the waters, and its ambassadors prepared themselves to visit the Keftiu of Crete. Sailing along the coast, the Egyptians soon came to their most important destination. The town of Amnesos, or Imnisha in Egyptian, was a small fishing village with a good harbour. Amnesos itself wasn't significant, but it functioned as the port for a much larger and more noteworthy town. Disembarking, the Egyptians were headed for the city of Knossos. Knossos is located just south of the coast, about halfway between the eastern and western points of the island. It is, without a doubt, the most significant Keftiu city that there is. From its fabled terraces, to its huge palaces, which might be temples, and its vast plains of agriculture, Knossos was the primary centre of all trade and political life on the island for many, many years. Of course, Knossos is more complex than that, and I'll explore a bit of that later. For now, let's follow the Egyptians as they made their way from Amnisos into the interior of the island. The ambassadors clambered onto donkeys and began a slow ride to the south. They were heading into the plains and valleys of central Crete. The countryside was a wonderful mix of burnt yellows, dusty greens, and a vast blue sky. Sunshine beat down on fields of wheat, on cypress and olive trees, and huge pastures of bulls, cows, sheep, pigs and goats. This was a rich land, and I bet that many generations of Egyptian visitors had been impressed by the abundance of Crete's agriculture. After a few hours donkey ride, the Egyptians arrived at Knossos, which they pronounced ka Once upon a time, Knossos was a towering edifice. Temples, workshops, storerooms, granaries, apartments and guardhouses spread across a vast area. Houses clustered on the edges of this massive complex, which in reconstructions looks like a sprawling campus of interconnected buildings. It was an impressive space once upon a time. Visiting Knossos in 1370 BCE, the Egyptians may have expected a sprawling palace dominating the region with goods and people flowing in and out daily. If so, they would have been disappointed. By the time of Amunhotep III, Knossos and its rulers were past their heyday. The city was still impressive, but several changes in the wider world had seen Knossos diminish from a dominant force on Crete to a shadow of its former self. The Egyptians may have wondered, what was happening here? Well, around 1450 BCE, about 80 years before the Egyptian embassy, Knossos was hit with a period of turbulence. It seems that a catastrophe of some sort racked parts of the city and the countryside. We're not certain what caused it, but it might have been a series of earthquakes, an accidental fire, or even an invasion from other parts. The causes are still being investigated, but whatever the reason, the result is crystal clear. After 1450 BCE, Knossos began to slowly diminish in importance and wealth. How bad was it? Well, the Egyptians visited around 1370, by 1300 or so, the city would be abandoned for good. So the Egyptians came to Knossos in the twilight days of its splendor. Instead of a grand Keftiu kingdom, they found a city fading, slowly losing influence and prestige. Perhaps day-to-day life was normal enough, but in the big historical picture, Crete, after 1450, went through a prolonged and seismic transformation. Without getting tangled up in the big picture, we can simply say that, for the Keftiu, and the people of Knossos in particular, it had been a difficult few decades. The Egyptians arrived at Knossos, past the outer limits, and entered the city's heart. Walking along the processional road, the Egyptian ambassadors found themselves entering a wide, flat courtyard. This is the central court of Knossos, a public space, and it formed the heart of the settlement, around which most of the other buildings developed. In this courtyard, the Minoans conducted rituals, celebrations, social events, and even games. Games like the famous bull leaping, in which athletic youths propelled themselves up and over the backs of charging bulls. Somersaulting, vaulting, doing tricks, the leapers of Crete were skilled and impressive acrobats. Even the Egyptians commemorated them in artwork back at home. The ambassadors came into the courtyard and found themselves face to face with the aristocracy of Knossos. The Keftiu were a splendid sight, ornately dressed, tall, glittering in finery. The Egyptians would have appreciated them. Based on artwork from their home, the costumes and garments of Keftiu Minoans were of great interest to the people of the Nile. Keftiu show up in tomb paintings from Thebes, bedecked in their finest clothes and jewellery, and the Egyptians depicted them with great care to detail. Coming to the home of the Keftiu, what kinds of sights might have greeted the ambassadors? According to art, the Keftu were an ornate people. The men wore kilts, which were higher at the back and lower at the front, going down in a sort of V-shape between the knees. Bright colours marked the edges and hemlines, and rich geometric patterns show up on their fabrics, even when they're depicted in Egyptian tombs. Beneath the kilts, Keftu men wore leather sandals, strapped up around the shins with bands of cloth. These putties, as older scholars called them, are a characteristic of their fashion, and would later go on to become quite popular in Greece and Rome. From the waist down, Keftiu men were quite covered up, wearing kilts or loincloths, with bright colours. On top, they usually went shirtless. Keftiu women wore long skirts, emphasising the hips. These were layered in heavy folds, and vivid colours decorated them as well. Around the waist, leather belts of some sort held the skirts up. On top? Well, that's another story. Keftiu women wore a sort of blouse or bodice. This was done up, but on ceremonial occasions, some women, perhaps priestesses, seemed to have opened the bodice up to expose the chest. As you can imagine, this kind of look excited the early archaeologists and it was publicized widely. Today, it's the classic image of a Keftu lady. Google Minoan dress, and you'll inevitably get a picture of a woman in a long skirt with her decolletage and breasts exposed for all to see. Scholars are a bit more cautious about this image now. For one thing, the look is quite impractical if you're working in the fields or weaving or pottery. For another, we tend to see this image only in specific contexts. Women with bare breasts appear in scenes of celebration or display, which suggest that the topless look is a ceremonial thing, rather than a day-to-day. So we should probably discard that old idea of the bare-breasted Minoan lady, at least for the most part, and imagine it as a specific style for a specific occasion. Festivals, worship, even weddings. Perhaps this was the ancient Keftiu version of ceremonial best. So Keftiu clothing was quite fascinating. Another interesting aspect is these people's hairstyle. Keftiu men and women both wore their hair long. Surviving images show them dressed with their hair up, tied back with a band of cloth. Women sometimes piled their hair into towers. The men let it flow down their back, styling it in the most majestic hairstyle of all, the mullet. Realistically, long hair was probably a phenomenon of the wealthy. The commoners out in the fields may have had a more cropped style of cut. The Kefdiou were overall a brightly coloured people. Their clothing seems to have emphasised patterns and layers, and this probably gave them a very distinctive look compared to the Egyptians. Granted, we have a very small supply of images to draw from, and they mostly show the wealthy in specific contexts, but to the Egyptian embassy entering the heart of the palace, the Keftiu elites would have seemed like an impressive, decadent sight indeed. Physically, the Keftiu were a lot like the modern Cretans. Women were about 157 centimeters tall, 5 foot one, slightly shorter than Egyptian men. Keftiu males were about 167 centimeters tall or 5 foot five. They were a sturdy folk with strong build and rugged features. Life expectancy was somewhere between 30 to 50 on average, with a very few making it older than that. So the average Keftiu was a tall, middle-aged individual, imposing and elegantly dressed. Great stature and strong physique encourage us to think that the Keftiu were a healthy people for the most part. A lot of this was their diet. As you can imagine, Keftiu meals were packed with the staples of a healthy Mediterranean culture. Meat included a lot of fish, goat, beef and pork, probably grilled on a fire. Vegetables included chickpeas, sesame and roots. Plenty of fruits like olives, figs, quinces and pears as well. And of course, grapes were ubiquitous, in wine and in consumption. So, with a varied diet, a good climate, and an active lifestyle, the Keftu were a strong, handsome people. The Egyptians, by contrast, were short and slightly malnourished. Egyptian diets were never as varied as those of the Mediterranean, and food did not travel easily in the age before salting or refrigeration. So, as they approached the Keftu representatives, the Egyptians might have noticed how, like the Mycenaeans, these people were an imposing, elegant sight. So the Egyptians came to Knossos and met with the local nobility. They bowed low before these bronze-skinned, long-haired people and admired their fashion sense. Naturally, this being an embassy and all that, they opened proceedings with the giving of gifts. Archaeologists have discovered several objects in Crete that bear the name of Amunhotep III, king of Egypt. From the ancient communities of Knossos, Phaistos, and Kedonia, decorated scarabs show up within the ruins. These are the same sort of scarabs that Amunhotep commissioned early in his reign, and which we explored in episode 97. The scarabs are small, made of faience, and usually bear the names of the king and his principal wife, Queen T. Put together, they are a lovely little collection. The Egyptian scarabs from Crete are varied in their design. At Knossos, one showed up with the hieroglyphic text, Neb Ma'atra Seba Tawi, aka Neb Ma'atre Amunhotep, the Star of the Two Lands. Another at Phaistos said, Chemet Nesut Ti, the king's wife, Queen Ti. And a third one at Kedonia said, Neb Ma'at Re, Meri Re, Neb Ma'at Re, beloved of rei. So the scarabs cover their bases. One invokes the pharaoh as a splendid, dazzling figure within Egypt. Another celebrates his wife, who later became quite famous internationally. And a third, emphasizes the pharaoh's status as one favored by the sun god himself. There's probably some significance to all this, but that's a question for the academics. In exchange for such gifts, the Keftiu elite may have given their guests some high quality golden jewelry. The Keftiu were quite good at this particular industry. The Keftiu elite were pretty well off by ancient standards. Maybe not pharaonic rich, but still high up on the ladder. Looking at just a couple of their artefacts, we can get a sense of their wealth, their tastes and their international connections. As the two cultures trade their goods, we should notice how rich the Keftiu diplomats were. In Bronze Age Crete, both men and women wore jewellery. This could take the form of beaded collars, necklaces made of copper from Cyprus, gold, silver and semi-precious stones. They wore diadems, or headbands, of cloth but also of silver or gold on ceremonial occasions. Like the Egyptians, the Keftu might display their status or prestige with a pectoral, a plate of metal, decorated and worn on the chest. Finally, they would adorn their wrists, ankles and biceps with bands of gold. In the hair, gold-topped hairpins held coifs in place, and on the ears, elaborate earrings finished off the look. I would be remiss if I didn't mention one particularly noteworthy piece of Minoan jewellery. The Malia pendant is in the Museum of Heraklion in northern Crete. It is a gold piece, decorated to look like two bees facing each other, and holding small discs between them. Small coins hang down off the bees' wings, and at the top, a tiny metal cage holds a small ball, which would jingle as the person walked. The Malia pendant is noteworthy both for the beauty of its appearance and the high quality craftsmanship, but also the fact that the two bees which make up the main body These are identical to the Egyptian hieroglyph for this animal. For a long time, scholars were unsure whether the Malia pendant depicted bees or hornets or some other insect. It wasn't until the early 1980s that a scholar recognized that the two bees were identical to the Egyptian word beet, meaning bee. Since then, it's been recognised that the Malia pendant is trace evidence for artistic communication between the cultures of Crete and the cultures of Egypt. In other words, artists from both countries were influencing one another, and their motifs show up in both lands. I'll explore some of the Kefdiou and Mycenaean influences on Egyptian art in the next episode but the Malia pendant is a beautiful example of how the Egyptians influenced the Aegean. The Egyptians gave their gifts, which probably included some items like food, wine, and textiles, things that don't survive as easily in the record. They might have offered valuable resources like gold and copper, and they may have given gifts like pottery, which could travel far and wide on the ancient trading routes. Remarkably, Keftiu goods show up alongside Egyptian ones in some very far-flung places. Most impressively, an ancient palace in Israel revealed a pair of beautiful Minoan cups. These cups were found quite well preserved in the Bronze Age layers of a palace. They appeared alongside, what else, a scarab of Amunhotep III, and were discovered in a well-preserved, sealed context. This suggests that the goods were deposited together at the same time, and not disturbed since they were laid down. Put together, the scarabs and cups suggest that Keftiu Egyptian trade was still active at the time of Amunhotep III, and artifacts of both cultures were travelling far and wide. So as the Egyptians and Keftu exchanged goods, they renewed and solidified their two cultures' relationship. Maybe they retired to the palaces now and began a great feast. This day was a good day. In the dappled light of a forest clearing, a Keftiu priestess prepared herself for the rituals of worship which would celebrate the great gods. The priestess wore a long skirt with heavy folds. On top, she wore a bodice that was open to expose her chest. She was preparing for worship of the great mother goddess, Mater Theia, and as she gathered her ritual tools, she was joined by her colleagues, and perhaps by a group of Egyptian ambassadors, who came to observe Kefti religion in its natural state. The Kefti Minoans conducted many of their religious rituals outside in the open air. There were shrines and temples in the cities, but a lot of the archaeological and artistic material suggests that processions often made their way out into the countryside. The Keftiu performed rituals in at least three specific areas. Firstly, they went up to caves on the side of mountains. Also, they went to sanctuaries on the mountain peaks. Finally, they went to groves or clearings in the midst of forests. From a variety of sources, we get a sense that gods, generally, appeared to mortals in the context of nature. So, visiting Egyptians may have seen a Kefti religious ceremony performed like this. Joining a procession, the ambassadors followed a long train of worshippers heading out of Knossos towards a forest. At the head of the group, a number of women were the leaders. In long, layered skirts, priestesses led the parade towards the grove of their goddess. And I stress goddess. Minoan ritual seems to have been overwhelmingly geared towards the feminine deity. Male gods did exist and are referenced, but the goddess, or Thea, is the most common figure in their art. So it's possible that goddess worship was the most popular form of religious expression for the Keftyumanoans. The priestesses led their worshippers into the forest and towards a grove or clearing there beneath a tree, they set up the statuette of the goddess and began their rituals. I won't go into too much detail, but the basic gist seems to have been that the priestesses began to dance. Like ancient dervishes, they swayed back and forth, arms raised in the air. They called out to the goddess to come forth, shouts ringing through the clear air of the grove. The sun shone down, dappling the face of the statue. In the flickering light and shadow, the goddess's face may have seemed alive, its expressions changing with the moment. As the women danced, they may have worked themselves into a state of ecstasy. This is uncertain, but it's a strong possibility based on later practices from classical Greece. Eventually, the dancing and prayer culminated in the appearance, or epiphany, of the deity. Minoan rings, which you can see on the website, show goddesses appearing to their worshippers, floating above the dancers. The priestesses raise their arms, beckoning the goddess forward, and flowers bloom at the thea's appearance. At this point, the offerings to the god began. We know of three major offerings in the Minoan rituals. Honey was popular, and sacrifices often involved goats. The most prestigious, though, was the meat and spirit of the sacrificial bull. Bulls are a big deal in Minoan cult. They appear in so many scenes and images, that for a long time, scholars thought the Minoans actually worshipped them. That's no longer accepted. Now, it is believed that the bulls were simply the ultimate expression of offerings. Huge, powerful beasts taking time and resources to rear, the bulls were obvious symbols of fertility and strength. To sacrifice a bull, you also needed a seriously strong tool. The Minoans had just the thing. Our Egyptian embassy watched as a bull came forward, led by a worshipper. One of the priestesses now picked up a weapon, a massive, double-headed axe. This would be used for the sacrifice. The double axe is one of Minoan Crete's most common and visible religious symbols. It appears in the hands of goddesses or priestesses as a symbol of their power. Surprisingly, it never appears in the hands of a male. So in Minoan Crete, the most powerful weapon and religious symbol was in the hands of a female authority. Stepping forward, the priestess now used the axe with frightening efficacy. The lead priestess raised the double axe and brought it down into the neck of the bull. With a dull thud and a crack of bone, the beast collapsed and blood poured forth. Again and again the axe descended until the head of the bull was removed and it lay dead on the floor of the clearing. Such a sacrifice was the ultimate in offering. Rushing forward, priestesses carved the animal up in order to lay the meat on altars and braziers before the goddess. Steak cooked, mingling with the smoke of incense to create a rich floral barbecue. Their stomachs rumbling, the exhausted dancers and worshippers came forward to share in a communal feast of the bull. Our Egyptian friends would have been familiar with some of these rites. The Apis bull in Egypt may have received a similar treatment at the end of its life. Cows, of course, were common in temple sacrifice, and Egyptians had been consuming bovine meat as part of their worship for thousands of years. So as the feasting began, the Egyptians may have felt a twinge of homesickness. This was a familiar situation, but with a few alien features. The Egyptians shared in a ritual practice of their hosts. Although the kingdom around them was fading, the priestesses and the worshippers practiced with as much passion and piety as ever. To the Egyptians, this must have been intriguing. The open air worship, for one thing, was radically different from the dark, closeted sanctuaries of Egyptian temples. Dancing and feasting were familiar enough. But the rituals of Crete had enough differences to hammer home just how far away they were from the Nile. I wonder if any of them felt anxious, or if they simply went with the flow, enjoying the novelty of travel in a new culture. The Egyptian embassy to Crete was a grand affair, visiting many sites and towns. The Egyptians exchanged, conversed, and shared culture with these foreign peoples who lived so far away, but who were so intimately connected to the wider world. The results are clear enough. Keftiu goods found their way to Egypt, sometimes in great quantities, and artistic expressions and connections were strong for many centuries of Egyptian history. As the year 1370 came to its end, the Egyptians' relationship with the wider world, specifically the Aegean, was growing ever stronger. The embassy to Crete solidified that, and gave it its final expression. Why final? Well, for the Keftiu, their story was coming towards its end. I mentioned earlier how Knossos and other cities were hit with difficulties around the year 1450 BCE. Well, a lot of that may have had to do with those other Greeks, the ones that we met last episode. The Mycenaeans of mainland Greece are a conspicuous factor in the changes which swept across Crete and the Aegean around this time. Between 1450 and 1300 BCE, the people of Mycenae, or Mukini, spread their influence and power across the Aegean. They traded, colonized, and raided different areas, even going as far as Anatolia and tussling with subjects of the Hittite empire. Over the course of generations, the Mycenaeans spread a powerful cultural influence to various parts of this region. On Crete, Mycenaean influence was profound. In settlements, graves, and art, hints and records of their culture become increasingly common after 1450. By the time of our Egyptian embassy, Mycenaean culture was present in almost every aspect of Cretan society. In fact, the Mycenaeans may actually have been ruling the island in some form. It's entirely possible that the people of Mycenae, or at least the elites, took over some of the political structures on Crete somewhere around 1400 BCE. A few pieces of evidence suggest that this happened. For one thing, their language appears very suddenly as the dominant language of Cretan texts. Administrative records and documents make a very quick switch from the old Keftu language, Linear A, to the newer Mycenaean one, Linear B. It's unclear if this language shift marks a political domination like a hostile takeover, or a softer kind of influence. Cultural markers, like art or written language, don't necessarily equal political control. The Mycenaeans may have been spreading their culture without conquering other peoples. Either way, the result on Crete was quite clear, Within a short space of time, a blink of an eye historically, the island transitioned from a Keftiu-dominated lifestyle, to one with heavy Mycenaean influence. When the Egyptian embassy visited, that influence must have been blatantly obvious. Whether the palaces were ruled by native Keftiu, or an immigrant elite, the sight of Mycenaean traders and administrators, and the sound of their language, must have been very common. To anyone paying attention, the writing was on the wall. This was the twilight of the old Keftiu period, and the dawn of the Mycenaean one. So as the Egyptians said goodbye to their hosts, and prepared to leave Crete, returning to Egypt, they were effectively saying goodbye to a thousand-year-old culture. On Crete, and around the Aegean, the future belonged to the Mycenaeans. In upcoming episodes, we will see how this process rippled outwards across the Mediterranean, The Mycenaeans were not a stay-at-home kind of people. They travelled far and wide, and many different cultures felt the touch of their influence. Naturally, the Egyptians were very interested in what these new Greeks had to offer their society. is the reign of Amunhotep III, the dazzling sun disk, great of strength, the one who is feared in all foreign lands. In the reign of this king, a royal official came to prominence. His name was also Amunhotep, but we know him better as Amunhotep, the son of Hapu. Amunhotep Hapu is a famous man. We did a full episode on him way back when. Well... There is another tale from his life that I want to tell. Amunhotep Hapu had a long and busy career. He left records of it, preserved on various statues. These statues tell Amunhotep's biography. And one chapter reveals a curious series of events. At some point, the king dispatched Amunhotep Hapu to the north. The high official went to the Nile Delta, that vast expanse of green bordering the sea. Here, Amunhotep Hapu was put in charge of organisation, specifically defence. Apparently, there were some issues on the coast. Quote, I, Amunhotep Hapu, have put troops at the mouth of the road, to repulse the foreigners from their places, and I am keeping an eye on the sand wanderers, the Bedouin. I have done the same upon the riverbanks, at the river mouth, surrounded by my troops, separate from the crews of the royal sailors. End quote. Amunhotep Hapu gathered troops, perhaps a local militia, and he led these troops against enemies in two places. On the desert's edge, the warriors fought against nomads, people of the hinterland. Perhaps these nomads came on a raid, or maybe they sought pastures and land for settling. Either way, the Egyptian commanders resisted such movements. Amunhotep Hapu and his troops Attacked the wanderers and drove them away. Then, another fight. This time, the troops went to the rivers, to the river banks and the estuaries. Apparently, another group was approaching the area. Again, we don't know their purpose. Were these maritime people pirates coming for a raid? Or were they migrants seeking places to live? It is impossible to know the purpose of these sea peoples on the available evidence. But whatever their goal, the result was the same. Egyptian troops, led by Amun-Hotep-Hapu, drove them away. The Egyptians defended their territory. This tale is small, but curious. It seems to track with other events in the Mediterranean and the Levant. Across the sea, on Crete, Cyprus, and in Syria and Canaan, fragmentary records speak of movements, travellers, and even piracy. Apparently, this period saw increasing activity on the sea, and some of it was violent. Who was doing this? Well, I won't tease you, that does not have an answer, yet. But historians have a couple of ideas. And other stories, from different sources, may add some context. In the days of Amunhotep III, or perhaps Akhenaten, the island of Cyprus was in trouble. Raiders were attacking their settlements and the coast, and the king of Cyprus had problems with this. In fact, that king wrote a letter to the pharaoh complaining about the situation. Quote, Say to the king of Egypt, my brother, the message of the king of Alashia, Cyprus, your brother. For me, all goes well, and for you, may all go well. For your household, your chief wives, your sons, your horses, your chariots, your numerous troops in your country, all of your officials, may all go very well. Every year, year after year, men of Luki seize villages in my country. You, my brother, say to me that the men of Alashia were with them. But, my brother, I do not know if they were. If that is true, send those men back to me. And I will act as you see fit. End quote. This letter is one part of an ongoing correspondence. The king of Alashia, Cyprus, wrote to the pharaoh, and the two were brothers, quote-unquote. Apparently, they even quarreled like brothers. Alashia was suffering attacks or raids from somebody called the Luki. Now, we actually have a decent idea who those people are. The Luki probably come from Anatolia modern Turkey. Specifically, they come from the southwest near the coast. Later, this land was called Lycia or Lycia, and people from this region appear in many historical records, including the famous Iliad, the tale of the Trojan War. The Lycians or Luki were valiant warriors and even pirates, So apparently, there is a strong connection between those communities and violence on the high seas. Anyway, some of these luki were raiding the villages of Cyprus. And that came to the attention of the pharaoh. The circumstances are murky, but from this letter, it sounds as though Egypt's king had captured some of these pirates. In his letter, the king of Cyprus refers to messages from Egypt regarding the issue. And he says, quote, If men of Alashia were among the pirates, send them back, and I will punish them. So, did the Egyptians capture some of these pirates? Is this the follow-up to Amun-Hotep-Hapu and his defense of the north? We can only guess what is happening there, exactly. But this tale, and the letter, is interesting. At the very least, it seems to invoke a period of instability or danger on the Mediterranean Sea. It is possible that amun Hoteb hapu was fighting against similar people to the ones raiding Cyprus. Either way, perhaps these events were part of a larger trend, skirmishes and bloodshed across the Mediterranean. From struggles on the shore, we now move to art from the royal court. Our source for this chapter comes from a papyrus, a fragmentary piece of paper unearthed at the city of Amana. These fragments have paintings on them, small scenes that have been drawn by an artist. There are at least two scenes in the surviving fragments. One of these scenes appears to show a battle. An Egyptian warrior is in conflict with foreigners, possibly people from Libya. The Egyptian seems to be losing, he appears to be on his knees, and the Libyans may be about to kill him. That's all we get from that fragment, and it's not the main focus. What I'm interested in is the other fragment. This fragment shows a group of warriors, or foot soldiers. They seem to be marching or running forward, possibly joining the battle that is happening. On their heads, these soldiers wear distinctive helmets. Now these helmets are not egyptian in style the troops seem to wear boar tusk helmets a style of headgear made from ivory that comes from boars these helmets are quite distinctive they come from the aegean from the world of the mycenaeans and the early greeks boar tusk helmets are a high status item in mycenaean archaeology they turn up in graves for high-ranking warriors And we also see them in art from the Aegean region. Items like this are expensive. To make a boar tusk helmet, the artisans would need ivory from dozens of animals. So these are prestigious items. That begs the question. Why are a group of soldiers on an Egyptian papyrus wearing Mycenaean helmets? There are at least two possible explanations. Are these Egyptian warriors who are wearing imported armour, or are they Mycenaean warriors who are serving the pharaoh? The answer is… uncertain. In 1994, a couple of scholars did a study on this papyrus specifically, but they did not reach a firm conclusion on the soldiers' origins. You see, apart from the helmets, the troops are quite generic. You wouldn't pick them out of a crowd. So there's nothing distinctive in their costume or their appearance to identify them. With that in mind, it is impossible to say if these are Mycenaean soldiers fighting for Egypt, or Egyptian soldiers using imported armour. If the troops are Egyptian, that is still quite interesting. It tells us that Akhenaten, or his government, was quite happy to import expensive foreign armour As I mentioned, these boar tusk helmets are high status items, they required a lot of effort and labour to produce. So if the Egyptian government was buying these helmets, that cannot have been cheap. Which begs the question, does this papyrus fragment show the pharaoh's bodyguard? The sort of top tier units we would expect to have that kind of expensive gear? Based on the surviving picture, we really can't say. This papyrus is the only example of boar-tusk Mycenaean helmets. None of the art from Akhenaten's reign ever includes these features. So it's anyone's guess as to who these troops were, if they were Egyptian. If the soldiers were Mycenaeans, that raises an interesting idea. Perhaps in the time of Akhenaten, the Egyptian government was employing foreign soldiers. Maybe Mycenaean warriors came to Egypt... Seeking employment or opportunities on the field of battle. They could serve the pharaoh at home and on campaign, and enjoy riches as a reward. The Egyptian government employed many groups as army units, and plenty of Egyptian soldiers came from distant lands and communities. The most famous example is the Magi, that elusive group from southern Egypt and Sudan. There are others particularly from the south, but you get the idea. Foreign mercenaries, quote-unquote, are a regular feature of the Egyptian army. The idea of Mycenaean warriors coming to fight for the pharaoh? That is certainly possible. Then again, there might be another interpretation. In this papyrus, or at least the fragment that survives, the distinctive warriors seem to be helping or supporting the Egyptians. But we only have a tiny portion of the scene. Perhaps the battle itself was more chaotic. Perhaps the sides are less clear-cut. What's my point? Well, maybe these Mycenaeans are enemies. Pirates or raiders on the Egyptian coast. That is speculative. We have no definitive proof for the Mycenaeans ever attacking Egypt in force. But... The idea of Greeks, or proto-Greeks, coming to Egypt for violent purposes, that does have a long legacy. The Mycenaean papyrus might have a distant connection with events from a famous tale, the tale of Odysseus and his travels on the sea. You may be familiar with a tale called The Odyssey. It is a story of heroes and monsters, gods, fate, hubris, and violence, composed in the first millennium BCE, centuries after the Amana period. The tale has nothing to do with that era specifically, but there may be elements or sections that draw on long cultural memories, vague histories or ideas of Bronze Age events. At the very least, the Odyssey evokes a picture of that time, the age of Mediterranean piracy. The section I am interested in concerns Odysseus, hero of Ithaca, and a small interlude in his adventures. It comes in book 14, just over halfway through the Odyssey. And here, the poet sings of a journey that Odysseus and his warriors took. Well, I say journey, it was more of a raid, And the target of this raid was Egypt. Quote, I, Odysseus, conceived the idea of making a descent on Egypt. So I fitted out a fine fleet and manned it. I had nine ships and the people flocked to fill them. We set sail from Crete with a fair north wind behind us, as though we were going down a river. Nothing went ill with any of our ships and we had no sickness on board. On the fifth day, we reached the river Aegyptus, Egypt. I stationed my ships in the river, bidding my men stay by them and keep guard, while I sent out scouts to explore from every point. But the men disobeyed my orders. They took to their own devices and ravaged the land of the Egyptians, killing the men and taking the wives and children captive. End quote the poet recounts how Odysseus and his followers set sail from Crete. That makes sense. In the 1300s BCE, Crete and other islands were dominated by Greek-speaking rulers, roughly. So the poet draws on a basically accurate idea of the region. Then the ship sails south, following the wind, and soon it reaches the mouths of the Nile. The Greeks called this river Aegyptus, which comes from the Egyptian phrase hutka Ptah, the estate of the spirit of Ka. Huthka Ptah is a name for Memphis, the great city. But by the time the poet was composing the Odyssey, the Greeks named the entire land as Aegyptos. So Odysseus comes to the river of Egypt, and he lands his ships somewhere in that area. Interesting. So far, the story broadly matches with the geopolitical layout of the Mediterranean, Greek-speaking rulers in the north, and Egypt accessible from Crete. It's not a lot to go on, but it's a start. Then we get the fun stuff, quote-unquote. The Greek warriors are impatient and they run amok. Soon they are attacking, raiding the hinterland, killing Egyptian warriors and seizing families. The raid is destructive, and its consequences would be dire. Quote, The men disobeyed my orders, and they ravaged the land of the Egyptians, killing the men and taking their wives and children captive. Soon, the alarm was carried to the city, and when they heard the war cry, the people came out at daybreak, until the plain was filled with horsemen and foot soldiers and with the gleam of armour. Then, the gods spread panic among my men, and they would no longer face the enemy, for they found themselves surrounded. The Egyptians killed many of us, and took the rest alive to do forced labour for them. I wish I had died then and there in Egypt, for there was much sorrow in store for me. End quote. The Greek warriors, the raiders, came to calamity. Their crimes in the hinterland caused a ruckus, and soon royal troops came forth. Emerging from the city, presumably Memphis or perhaps Avaris in the north, Egyptian troops surrounded the foreigners. So far, it's sounding relatively stable in terms of its description of the area. At the very least, there were royal fortresses in the north, so there's a good chance that Egyptian garrisons could have defended against a raid like this. To be clear. I'm not saying that the Odyssey describes an actual single event. Instead, the poet is drawing on long cultural memories of raiding and piracy in the distant past. By the time the Odyssey came about, the Egyptian 18th dynasty was 600 years gone. But memories, vague and shadowy, may have informed some of these tales. This chapter of the Odyssey has a happy ending, sort of. As the Greek warriors found themselves beleaguered, beset on all sides, Odysseus made a solution. He surrendered. Quote, I took off my helmet and shield and dropped my spear from my hand. Then I went straight up to the king's chariot. I clasped his knees and kissed them, at which point he spared my life. He commanded me to get into his chariot, and he took me, weeping, to his own palace. Many Egyptians attacked me with their spears and tried to kill me in their fury, but the king protected me, for he feared the wrath of Zeus, the protector of strangers, the one who punishes those who do evil. Quote. The little reference to Zeus at the end would fit quite nicely into the pharaoh's propaganda. As the servants and agents of Amun-Ra, of Ma'at, of Osiris, they would ideally fear the wrath of those gods and they might honour a powerful, noble captive. Not always. There are plenty of examples where Egyptian kings were brutal to their prisoners. But at the most basic level, the Odyssey does convey something vaguely believable about a Bronze Age conflict. Now, did this raid happen? Did Odysseus exist? Did he truly visit Egypt? Those are questions well beyond this podcast. I leave it to you to draw your specific conclusions there. But whether it is a myth with a dash of historical truth or simply historical fiction, it is an interesting tale. And when we think about Egyptian references to foreigners in their land, like the Mycenaean soldiers on that papyrus from Amarna, well, this period, the late 14th century BCE, seems like a genuinely international time mm mm-hmm.